It is a real privilege to be here with you. I give you greetings from Southern California, about an hour north of San Diego, California, the land of fruits, nuts, and flakes. And uh, we're so grateful. Uh, the people who leave our church, uh, they usually go the other direction. Uh, they usually go to Tennessee, they go to Washington, they're running away from something and trying to get to a place of uh, maybe more, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, worldly comfort or whatever. Uh, but interesting enough, uh, they don't usually travel this way. They don't usually come over to Hawaii, but if they ever mention Hawaii, God is my witness that as a church, we tell them to come to this church. Uh, we love your pastor. I know him well, and uh, I, I would say this publicly, anywhere he is the finest exegete on the islands of Hawaii. He is. He is an amazing, gifted man. Yeah, that's right. You should. You should love that guy. He works hard, and uh, he loves you, and it is an honor to be here. I'm not just saying that. You can t ask anybody that knows me. I would say the same thing to them, and uh, so it is a real privilege for me to be here. It is uh, just, a, a, just a joy. I'm, I'm, I'm out of my mind with excitement. So uh, I would like you to take your outline, if you would, and grab a hold of that and kind of track with me. Uh, I usually track with that, and I actually have people read from that outline so we can read things together. So you want to kind of make sure you track with me on that. If you didn't get a bulletin, I'm sure somebody will get you one. But a friend of mine actually received a greeting card that said this, I wish, I wish for you all the world can give. And his response to that card was, oh great, tsunamis, tornadoes, death, disease, all the world can give. His perspective on that was totally different than the greeting card actually intended. But sadly, the world does have a great deal of pull in our lives. Would you agree? Uh, we live on this planet. This is our temporary home. And it does affect the way that we live. And scientists tell us that if you can lift 200 pounds on Earth, you can actually lift uh, 1,200 pounds on the moon. But if you lived on a planet the size of the sun, you actually wouldn't be able to raise your hand to say hello. And if you laid down, you'd never be able to get up again because of the impact of the gravity. Interesting enough, what's true in the physical realm is also true in the spiritual realm. The weight of our efforts to live for Christ really depends on the kind of influence this world has on us. And something that we as Christians actually need to evaluate in our lives. Are you weighed down with the pressures of this world or are you weightless? Are you free to live for eternity while you live on planet Earth? Interesting enough, uh, you know, maybe we're asking the question, are you too interconnected here? Are you too, uh, you know, convoluted here? Are you too involved with the things, whether internally or externally, so much so that you're not thinking about your future home? You're going to be here, what, 90 years maybe, maybe 95, and you're going to be in eternity for how long? Forever. That's right. So this is our temporary home. So the question is, if you're bored with spiritual things, if you're lost a little bit of your joy, if things have just fallen into routine in your spiritual life, maybe you're just too attracted to this world. Maybe that's part of the problem. Quite possibly, you've become worldly. Now, that's a term, as soon as you hear that as a Christian, you're like, no, 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 I'm not worldly. I don't have a leather coat. Uh, I don't have pink hair and uh, 55 piercings. Uh, I don't own a Tesla. I'm just kidding. Uh, so, <laughs> understand the fact that you're saying, I'm not worldly. Well, you know, interesting enough, I would like you, if you can, and this is really difficult, Erase all your concepts of worldliness, and let's allow the Word of God to define worldliness for you. And that would be in one passage in particular, and that would be 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. Turn there in your Bibles. If you're not there already, please do so. This familiar passage is designed to test you, to test you, to see if you're in the faith. And we're going to do that this morning by two major points, would be the meaning of worldliness. We're going to look at that through expositing the text very briefly. And then we're going to actually draw out the principles that are found in this text in point number two, the message about worldliness. But if you can, in your outline, I think the passage is listed there for you. Is it not? Is there? Okay, so I want you to read it out loud. 
So you've got to kind of be bold now and, and say it verbally, even if you trip up, even if I mess up. Here we go. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, to 17. Let's read it from the same passage together from your outline. Everyone, here we go. Ready? Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Point number one in your outline, what is the meaning of worldliness? The meaning, what is that? Now the purpose of the book of 1 John, when you open up your, you know, New Testament, and you get to this particular book, is, is really biblical assurance of salvation. That's the purpose of this book, and we know that because John told us why he wrote this letter, and that's in chapter 5, verse 13. He tells us that. If you look at that, it says, these things I have written to you. Why did you write them, John? Well, it's to all you believe in the name of the Son of God, and what's the purpose? So that you may, what? Know that you have eternal life. You may what? Know. know that you're confident in your knowledge that you have eternal life. That's why he wrote this little five-chapter book. And this entire letter is filled with tests, tests, to help you determine whether you're truly born again, whether you're truly saved or not. This book is written for that purpose. And there are five main tests. Now, I love to give acrostics, so just bear with me. It's either D-O-L-E-S, or if you want to reverse it and go oldies, it's O-L-D-E-S, or if you want to go L-O-D-E-S, loads, and the way you want to look at it, it's basically those are the five main tests that exist in this book. One is D-doctrine. If you have a wrong view of Jesus Christ, you're not going to be born again. You're not going to be saved. You have to have a proper view of who God is and who Christ is to actually be born again, and he talks about this in this little letter. Also, O would be obedience. Obedience, yes. Faith without works is what? It's dead. It's not real faith. There's going to be some outworking of obedience, a desire for obedience that you're going to follow, that you're going to pursue in, as you're a born-again Christian. You won't be perfect at it, but you're going to pursue obedience. And the D-O-L, L would be love. Love would be that you love the Lord and you love others. That would be a manifestation of Christ in you. That will be a natural outworking of you being a Christian. And then E would be endurance. Listen, even when you fall flat on your face, even when you blow it big time, a Christian laying there flat on their face is still going to say, but I still want to follow Christ. I still want to pursue him. I still want to endure in my faith. And then S would be spirit manifestations. When God lives in you, he shows through you. There's some, he's going to manifest himself in some way. Those are the five. Now, there's more tests in 1 John, but the five big ones are L-O-D-E-S, those tests. And this test that we read today is another version of the love test. What John does, he, he writes in Greek, but he kind of writes like a Hebrew, and he basically attacks the love test in a variety of different ways like if well if you love others then you love god if you love god you'll love others and he goes through the whole letter kind of reinforcing this test of love and one of those tests one of those reinforcements is this the passage that we read that if we love god we will not love the world that's the test if we love god we will not love the world now there are three verses and in these three verses, there's one main imperative, one command that we need to follow, and that is don't love the world. That's the command. And then he gives three major incentives or motivations for you, all right? The first motivation would be if you love the world, you don't love God. So that's a motivation for us. Another incentive or a motivation would be if you love the world, you'll perish with the world. And the third motivation that's found in this particular text is that if you love God instead of the world, then you will live with God forever. You'll live with him forever. Now look at verse 15. As John asks you to evaluate your spiritual lives by the test of love, the apostle says, verse 15, do not love the what? The world. Thank you for answering. We do that in California. It helps people, reinforces. So do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not 
in him. Here's the command, don't love the world, set in contrast to loving God. And what you see right out of the gate here is that if you're a Christian who loves the world, you're either loving this impersonal system that leaves God out, or, or you're just not interested in the things of God. You're just not interested. You know, what's interesting is I, you know, was introduced as a youth pastor, and you can't take the youth pastor out of the, you know, and it's true. It's true. I used to be the junior high pastor and then the college pastor, and I was a high school pastor, and I, I just love working with youth. I do. But interesting enough, when you teach junior hires, they're polite enough to let you know when you're not connecting. You know what I mean? When you're not communicating, they're playing with their shoelaces, they're throwing notes, they're doing anything other than, you know, paying attention. Interesting thing, when you talk to adults, when you talk in church, they can fake you out. You can act really interested and you're thinking about stuff later on today. You know what I mean? Because you're, you're, you're not really engaged and you hide it better. Well, interesting enough, to not love the world means that God gets more attention than the world. That's what he's talking about here. More interest, more conversation than the world ever gets since the primary object of love for a true Christian is Christ himself. Would you agree with that? That's the primary object. Now, when John says not to love the world, he's not talking about people. He's not talking about the people of the world. He's not telling you not to love the unsaved. He's commanding you to not love the fallen world system that leaves God out. Anything that leaves God out and lies under the influence of Satan. In fact, he talks about that and defines it in 1 John 5.19. You might look that in your outline or in your Bibles. It says in 1 John 5.19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of who? The evil one. You see, when John says in uh, verse 15, nor the things of the world, that's different than loving the world. He actually makes a contrast. Don't love the world, nor the things of the world. When he's talking about loving the world, that's the attitude of worldliness. It may not even be manifested in your actions, but it's the attitude. When he says the things of the world, that's the actions of worldliness. So there are many so-called Christians who don't look worldly, all right, but they keep all the external do's and don'ts, you know, they're poly or Paul perfect, whatever. But in their heart, they desire the things of the world. There's an attitude of desire. Therefore, they're worldly. So even an attitude that loves the world is in opposition to who God made you to be, or at least what a Christian is. So John goes on to say, if anyone loves the world as a continual pattern of their life, they're not saved. He says, for the, the love for the Father is not in them. The Bible says it's utterly impossible to love God and at the same time love the world. In fact, James says it really, really strongly in James 4.4. He says, you adulteresses, wow, do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. So here's the test. No true Christian continually say, can continually love the world and make a biblical claim to be a Christian. Continually, ongoing. Why? Verse 16, take a look at it. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Lust of the flesh, all the emotional desires that are independent of God. And, and again, when he's talking about lust, he's talking about strong desire. All those strong desires... That, that are independent of God. And then he says, the lust of the eyes, all the earthly longings that we have for things or experiences, and the boastful pride of life, all the seeking for recognition, all the seeking of self-fulfillment and approval from others, apart from God, does not come from God, but it's a part of this fallen evil system. So that's what he's talking about here. This is kind of almost a black and white issue. There's two kinds of people, those that love the world and those that love God. You say, isn't there kind of a compromise in there? Isn't there a little bit where, you know, Christians love God, but they also love the word a little, and whatever. The answer to that is found in verse 17. He says, and the world is what? Passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. This whole way of life as we know it is going to end. And John says the world is literally ending itself like a bad battery that's going dead. Or remember those little wind-up toys that finally run out of juice? The world's, the world's ending, okay? It's, it's going to end. Some of you are going, it's ending a lot sooner than we thought. You know, it's coming together here. And John says this world is literally ending, but he says the one who continually is doing the will of God, participating in God's plan, God's purposes, uh, the one who's doing what Jesus came to do will live forever 
with God in eternity. So are you about his business? Are you living life in what he's called you to do? Well, you will abide forever. The one who trusts in God's perfect will, as if it were an unbreakable law, compared to the fleeting desires of worldliness, that one will remain forever with God and not be condemned with this world. Now, I kind of flew through a really quick exegesis. That's the, the basically the meaning of this text. Let's talk about the message. Now, the message would be drawn out of the text. So point number two in your outline, what are the main lessons that we get from this to really drive this home and make it clear? Some of you are going, Chris, you're not being clear. Okay, we're going to be clear now, really clear. Evaluate your life, point number two, the message of worldliness, in light of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, 16 to 17, and then also what else the New Testament teaches us about worldliness, all right? Again, we have our views about worldliness. Let's let God redefine them as to what he really means by what he says. So, first in your outline, worldliness is a progression, a progression in the life of a believer. Real Christians are in the world, but we are not what? Of the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We interact with the world, but we're not to be submerged in the world. <clears throat> yesterday, my son took me scuba diving, one of my favorite things to do in Hawaii, and I saw two kinds of boats yesterday. There was one that was on the surface, and there was one that was 80 feet below the surface, all right? <clears throat> That's kind of a bad thing when your boat is 80 feet below the surface. Anybody with me on that? Kind of a bad thing. So same thing with us. We're to be on top of the water, and that's a good thing for a boat to be on top of the water, but it's a bad thing when the water's in the boat. Are you with me on this? Same thing for the Christians. Good for us to be in the world, but not the world being in us, because that'll what? Sink us, all right? That's what he's talking about here. So the influence of the world in the life of the Christian usually begins like a slow leak. It's very subtle in our lives, a subtle progression. Uh, just as no Christian stumbles into immorality suddenly, there are a lot of little sins that kind of lead up to it, to that major sin. So no Christian is really captivated by the world all at once. There are a lot of so-called little sins that kind of lead up to that moment. So Chris, how do I prevent it? Well, you want to identify the progress of worldliness in your life if you're headed down that path. And the Bible gives us some clues. So I've got three points for you. One, don't become stained by the world. Don't become stained by the world. You say, where'd you get that from? I'm so glad you asked. James 1.27. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress, showing the genuineness of our faith. And then he says, and to keep oneself, what? Unstained by the world. Unstained, it usually goes like this. Uh, things that used to bother you as a young Christian no longer bother you. Are you with me on this? Sometimes, you know, when you first became a Christian, I'm like, man, I'd never do that again, and this is opposed to God, and then all of a sudden that starts to slowly seep back into your life. Anybody with me on this? Okay, thank you. Thank you for smiling and at least saying yes. I appreciate that. So, you know, all of a sudden you stop guarding against being stained. Now, I know that many of you have given yourself to painting. Painting. Now, I'm not talking about the Rembrandt kind of painting. I'm talking about slap it on the walls, kind of roll it up and down painting. Are you with me on this? And when you start your day, you're taping things off, you're covering it with sheets, you're being really careful, you wear special clothes, and your goal is to get the paint on the wall and on the ceiling and not on you, right? But as the day wears on, what happens? The paint starts to wear on too, right? All of a sudden, you're seeing big plotches of this and plotches of that. And something I know in my heart one time, it clicked. And it, all of a sudden I realize, I, I want to see how much paint I can get on myself, you know? So you start rolling it on, you know? And like you're some sort of rabid football fan, you know? You're just ready to go. Everything's going on everywhere, and it's instead of going where it's supposed to be, and you stop being careful. Well, that's a little bit like how worldliness begins to creep into our lives. We begin to be very careful about it, but as life wears on, you begin to see more of it kind of on your life. And then you're like, oh, why, why even try? It's all under grace. I'll just do whatever. And then you just keep going for it, right? And that's kind of being stained by the world. As the day wears on, you get a little bit more loose. As life wears on, you start rolling it on. Uh, and again, being stained by the world is very much like that. You know, those so-called little sins are not sins anymore. And, uh, you know, you just kind of just let them go. You know, it's okay to be hostile on those people who drive like crazy. And Carmageddon happens again in Hawaii. And curses go up to God. And, and that kind of stuff. It, it can't be helped. It's too late now. You just become stained. 
Secondly, secondly, uh, if this continues unconfessed, then God gives us this warning. Number two in your outline, don't become conformed to the world. And you know this verse, Romans 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that it may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Everybody knows what Plato is, right? Everybody knows Plato, Plato, that wonderful stuff, that clay stuff that you shape into whatever you want. Your kids play with it. Secretly, you play with it. And God says, don't be mashed into the thinking and the values of the world. Don't let the world conform you into its shape. That would be, in a sense, leaving God out or opposed to God. Don't let the world press you into its mold. You see, once you get covered with enough of the world's paint, you don't look any different. Anybody remember the Susan B. Anthony dollar? Anybody remember that? It was exact same size as a quarter, except it had little like straight edges around it. They got rid of it simply because people couldn't tell the difference between that and a quarter. Well, listen, when you become conformed to the world, nobody can tell the difference between you and someone who is not a Christian. You just look the same. You're conformed. He says, don't be that person. So you get from being stained to living conformed. The Bible warns you that if you continue to be conformed, it might be that you're going to be condemned with the world. And that's another passage, another warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. It says, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be what? Condemned. God spanks you so that he demonstrates and helps you to not be conformed with the world. With me on that? If you are saved, God will discipline you. And if he doesn't discipline you, according to Hebrews chapter 12, then it's evidence that you're not his child and that you could be condemned along with the world. So the world will pass away in judgment and it will take all those who love it with it. All those. If you remain conformed to the world as a lifestyle, there's a good chance. If you remain conformed to the world, there's a good chance as an ongoing. Now, I'm talking about one day I'm not talking about a week. I'm talking about ongoing lifestyle. Then there's a chance that you're headed to eternal torment in hell. Because Christians are uniquely different than this world. That's what John is telling us here. 1 John 2, 15 and 17, all the way there, he says, if you're continually loving the world, then you're lost and you will be judged with those of the fallen world. That's what he's saying. I'm not saying it. He's saying it. So where are you at? Are you continuing to look at the world? Then chances are... You're of the world. Remember Lot? Lot's a great illustration. He looked toward Sodom. He had a heart desire. Sodom was on the real fertile plains there. Secondly, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. He became stained. Third, he moved into Sodom. He became conformed. And he was almost condemned with Sodom, right? Almost. So, understand it's a progression moving from, you know, the, the staining to conforming to possibility of condemning, a progression. Secondly, if you got that right, then secondly, understand worldliness is forsaking a person. Worldliness is forsaking a person. Do you notice in verse 15, 16, and 17, John compares a relationship with a personal God to craving an impersonal system. He makes a comparison in these verses. And I want you to see that comparison. Look what he says in verse 15. The love of the Father is not in him. He's comparing worldliness in contrast to a love for a person. Verse 16, is not from the Father. So again, the system versus a person. Verse 17, the will of God. To love the, the world as a Christian or just as a person is to do two things. It's to love an impersonal system and it's to turn your back on a personal God. That's the right way to look at worldliness. To love the world is to ignore God. You, you know, you say hi to him on Sunday, and then the rest of the week, Monday through Saturday, it's, there's no even thought of him. You don't have to get in an edgy tattoo. You don't have to lose all your money in Vegas and gambling. Uh, to be worldly, just ignore God. That's a worldly heart. A worldly heart is one that has allowed something, some desire, some person, or some event to compete for God's rightful place as first love in your heart. Let me say that again. Let me say that again. A worldly heart is one that has allowed something, some desire, some person, or some event to compete for God's rightful place 
as first love in your heart. That's a worldly heart. That's a worldly heart. This morning, can you echo Psalm 73:25? It you know, haunts me too. I'm, I'm with you. Every time preachers preach, you know, this is all splashing on us as well. So it says, Whom am I in heaven but thee? For besides thee, I desire nothing where? On earth. Nothing on this world. I don't desire this world. The heart free from worldliness is one that desires nothing but Christ, possesses nothing but Christ, pursues nothing but Christ, because to live is what? Christ. To live on this planet is Christ. Well, someone will say, well, wait a minute, Chris. Can I desire a job? Or if I'm, I'm single, can I desire a spouse? Or can't I long for a healthy body? And the answer to that question really is no, unless it involves a desire for Christ. You say, wow, that's a little stuff. No, no, think about it. You want a job because through it you can serve Christ and love Christ and, and do what God has called you to do and provision, etc. You long for a spouse, why? So that you both can then serve Christ together greater than you could independently as a single. Do you have an eye for Christ in everything you desire? Now, Augustine, uh, one of our church fathers, uh, has this quote, and I'm going to try to make it clear. It's kind of a difficult one, but it's really profound. He says this, He loves Christ too little, who loves anything together with Christ, which he loves not for Christ's sake. Let me say it again. He loves Christ too little, who loves anything together with Christ, which he loves not for Christ's sake. Does that make sense? It's everything we do is for his sake. Otherwise, we're beginning to drift into this world that leaves God out. We often think of worldliness as gross sin, but it's merely ignoring God. We were made to have continual communion with him. Therefore, the first step of overcoming worldliness is to restore your relationship with the Lord through his word, by his spirit, in prayer. We can't do this on our own. Uh, your pastor prayed that at the very beginning. You know, we can't do any of this unless it is empowered by the Spirit of God. We have to trust him for our salvation and sanctification and rely on him completely. But when you become his friend, you will not be the world's friend. In fact, if Christ is not your best friend, your first love, then something else or someone else will be. Let me say that again. If Christ is not your best friend, then something else and some or someone else will be because we're made that way. Imagine if you were engaged this morning, and after church, you went down here to uh, Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf, which I plan to go to, and you go down there, and your fiancé looks at you and says, you know, this marriage stuff's for the birds. Let's just go back to being friends. Would that be devastating to you? Sure it would. Absolutely devastating. But when we ignore God, are we any different? Are we any different? than a spouse who ignores their marriage partner. Which brings me to ask this question. If the Lord were your spouse, how strong would your marriage be? Intimacy-wise, relational-wise, all those factors. It's forsaking a person. Thirdly, worldliness is a heart passion. It's a heart passion. I tried to make them all be peas because I was trying to follow John's example. So when a fundamentalist preacher gets his people to burn their trashy CDs... Uh, their, their cigarettes and their immoral clothing, then everybody feels less worldly, right? They all feel really good. Some think if you never go to a movie or use the internet, you'll be less worldly. Some feel if I wear certain clothes and, and get certain kind of haircut, then I'll be all the less worldly. Others believe that everybody drove only used cars and never borrowed money, we'd all be less worldly. That is not what the Apostle John says. He doesn't say that in this passage at all. All those things are worthy of discussion and might be evidence of a believer who loves the world. They might be, but they may indicate a heart that's given over to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. They might be, but you don't have to do those things to be worldly. You don't. A clean-cut businessman in a suit could be more worldly than a guy riding a Harley. Some of you have Harleys are going, man, praise God. Oh, man, we're good. No, understand, how can that be? They may not do any of the particulars, the outward external deeds of worldliness, but still be worldly, listen, if they have desires in their heart 
towards the things of the world. If the things of the world are in their heart, this is a passion, a desire. Understand, the word lust there in verse 16, all right, you might want to circle it. You might want to put above there strong desire. Strong desire. That's what he's talking about. A heart issue. It's what you long for in your heart that makes you worldly. A lover of the world. It's not what you do. That's only the result of it. It's what you long for in your heart. The Apostle John says, no one may see it, but you may be filled with desire for this world. What do I mean? You crave pleasure. You fantasize over sin. You lust over possessions. You become envious of others or the unsaved. So much of worldliness is blamed on the externals, and yet sometimes the externals are no indicator at all. I mean, you've met people who, like, they're like, wow, this guy's got to be of the world, and, and they've been born again and transformed. They just have all the remnants of their unsaved life still with them. You know what I'm saying? Understand, uh, the indicators are not external. Someone may look worldly and yet have a passion and heart for Christ, and the externals are not the real issue, for worldliness stems from a heart that desires anything but the Lord first in all things. In fact, look what he says in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The first two descriptions, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, describe desires for what you don't have. Okay, you desire this, you desire that. And the third, the pride of life, describes an internal pride in what you do have. So what you don't have, what you do have. And the world is driven by, are you ready, a passion for pleasure, the world, a passion for pleasure, and a pride in possessions. That's why advertising works. That's why it works. A passion for pleasure and a pride in possessions. And the passion for pleasure is described two different ways, physical and aesthetic. Two ways. The lust of the flesh is physical, bodily pleasures. And the lust of the eyes is aesthetic or intellectual pleasures. John, the apostle, is not naive, and we shouldn't be either. He knows worldliness is not limited to people who shop at Nordstrom's. Anybody know Nordstrom's? Kind of the high end. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make a humor here and nobody laughs. So there you go. It, it, you know, as if only those people are worldly. Now, the Mueller's, we, we shop only Italian. Targhetto, you know. Costco, you know, those, those kind of things. That's, that's us. But understand, that doesn't mean we're not worldly. The, the, the lust of the flesh is the lust of the gutter or the gourmet. Either way. There's lust for the hard rock and lust for the classical. Either way. The book of 1 John ends with a ringing command. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Those idols could be crude or those idols could be cultured, but they're still idols of the heart, things that you worship more than Christ himself. Anything in this world that is not God can rob your heart of the love of God because worldliness is an inner heart passion. It's an internal desire. So ask yourself, where's your wantometer? Really? And you know what? Nobody can evaluate that for you. Husbands, wives, it's an internal issue. Where's your wantometer? What do you want more than anything? If it is Christ, that's a good sign. If it's the things of the Lord, if it's a desire to please him, that's a good thing. If it's this world, that's not so good. Where's your desire dial, right? The Bible does talk a lot about that. What you desire most, the things of God or the things of the world? Uh, the people of God or the people of this world? Uh, fellowship with God or, or fellowship with friends, you know, who are of this world? Or God's word or somebody else's word? Which one? Worldliness is a passion, a desire. And if your desires head toward God, that's a good spiritual sign. If they point toward the world, that's a bad spiritual sign. Fourthly, fourthly, here we go, we're almost done. Worldliness is a wrong perspective a wrong perspective. Look at verse 17. It reminds us the world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God, what? He abides how long? Forever. So notice that. Notice those phrases there. The world is passing away, but who does the will of God abides forever. He's making a contrast here. Passing away, abides forever. The person who does not love the world has an eternal perspective. 
the Christian not living for the world has heaven on his or her mind. Most of us, the problem with an eternal perspective is that it's far removed from our daily life. Uh, it, it really is detached from the way we really live. The difference uh, is really eternal in the sense of does eternity make a difference in your life? Uh, what difference does eternity make in your life? Oh, there, there's so much to worry about. I mean, you've got your job, you've got your spouse, you've got your kids, you've got your grandkids, you've got your boyfriend, you've got your job, you've got your team, you've got your friends. I've got to live life now, not worry about eternity, right? But the Apostle John says, listen, if we don't allow eternity to rip through every aspect of our lives, we become worldly. We're too centered here. We live for feeling good. We live for our possessions. We, we live for being liked. We live for being successful. Understand, we become worldly when every day is not impacted by eternity. Every day. We're so crafty about it, too. We, we think to ourselves, well, if I do these things, then, you know, God will bless me. Uh, if I'm nice to her now, she'll treat me nice later. Uh, basically, we sow now so we can what? Reap in this lifetime. When actually, God is asking us to have an eternal perspective that we're to sow now so we can reap in eternity. Reap in eternity. Do you remember what Jesus said after the rich young ruler kind of walked away from salvation because he was unwilling to, to surrender his riches and leave his riches? Well, the disciples were wondering that too. And they're thinking to themselves, listen, if this guy, this rich young ruler, wouldn't leave anything for Christ, and we've left everything for Christ... Is that going to make a difference? And Jesus says, yes. Yes, it is. He says in Matthew 19, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. You are to sow now to reap in eternity. The next time you try to figure out your net worth, remember that all your possessions, all your holdings are for only two purposes. Now, every time I mention this, the collegians are going, I got nothing, so this doesn't apply to me. All right? Now, listen, if you collegians were buying a coffee down at the Bean down here, then you've got some possessions, right? So let's talk about your little possessions compared to maybe some others who have a lot more. So what is that all about? Biblically, there are two reasons why you have what you have, no matter who you are. Biblically. Number one, they're a tool. A tool to be used for the kingdom of God. To support the work of the gospel and invest in eternity. They're a tool. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to be responsible. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to earn income. We're not supposed to save. None of that. I'm not saying any of that. But your things are to be used for his glory. Can I hear an amen to that? It's true. We're to live everything. Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, can't lift a glass of water to my lips unless it's going to glorify God. All my things are for his glory. All of them. The second thing that the Bible teaches about possessions is that they're a test. A tool or a test. They're a test of your true spiritual life. Where your treasure is, there your what? Heart is also. None of your money, none of your possessions is yours. It's not yours. All of it belongs to who? God. That's true. He purchased you. He, he owns you in a sense. And you are merely a steward. And stewardship is using all you have for the owner's purposes. It's all you have for the owner. It's not accumulating, not hoarding, but using things for the king. Stewardship isn't keeping things clean and unscratched. Stewardship is using all your resources for the master. Nobody buys stock in a company that's sure to fail, right? Nobody sets up a house on a sinking ship. And no reasonable person stores their valuables where they know they're going to get ruined or stolen, where moth or rust destroy and thieves break in. The words of Jesus. The, the world's passing away. So real Christians work at maintaining an eternal perspective with their things. Only two things are eternal. People and God's word. Therefore... So genuine Christians will use what God has given them to invest his word into people. Our, our perspective towards our things and money must be eternal, otherwise we're going to drift into worldliness. It's got to be, Lord, it's yours. And ladies, next time you open the door in the parking lot and it crashes into a pole 
and it dents the door, you come home and you tell your husband, it's the Lord's car, honey. Right? Biblical. Be biblical, ladies. And he'll go, of course, dear, you're right. So, <laughs> worldliness is a progression, slow leak, starts slow, it's subtle in our lives, subtle. It's ignoring a person, the person of Jesus Christ, the one who is to be our first love, the one whom life is Christ. Uh, worldliness is a passion, it's an internal desire, an internal desire, an internal heart drive. And it's also an eternal perspective. And fifthly, in your outline, worldliness is neglecting your purpose. Your purpose. Again, verse 17, and the world is passing away and also it's less, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. One, neglecting your purpose. The world is passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Note the phrase, does the will of God. He's not talking about his personal will for you. He's talking about his will for the planet. He's talking about his will for the planet. And understand, if you love Christ, you will love what he wills, correct? If you love Christ, you will love what he wants, what he desires, what he wills. It's empty talk to say that you love God and not love what he loves. It's empty talk. So therefore, you're to be focused on God's will. Remember Christ? What did he say about his relationship with the Father? He said in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's my food. That's what I live on, to do what God wants. And then what is it that God wants? Well, John 17, in this high priestly prayer, Jesus said this. He said, as thou didst send me into the world, I have what? Sent them into the world. You've been sent. You are here for a purpose on planet Earth. Can I hear an amen to that? You're here for a reason. And worldliness is neglecting that reason. You say, what is the reason? simply stated, and again, I'm the master of overstatement and simple statements, to share Christ with the ain'ts and to build up the saints. That's why you're here. In the world, you're to be reaching them with the message of the gospel. In the church, you're to be building each other up. Very simple. That's why you're here. Very, don't lose that. I tell my church all the time, listen, there are two reasons. Every Sunday, you're here for only two reasons. It's true. The way you glorify God, are you ready? You come to Christ in salvation, you become like Christ in sanctification. That's it. Come to Christ, become like Christ. We're to become, if you're a Christian here, to become more like Christ today. If you're a non-Christian here, God is hopefully working on your heart for you to come to Christ. That's his will for your life. That's what you're doing here. To for, and that we would all follow Christ. It's doing the one thing in this world that you can't do in heaven. And what is that one thing? Some of you say, have babies. Why do you have babies? So they'd come to Christ, right? So the ultimate reason is, is that they would follow Christ. Follow Christ. The one thing you can do in this world you can't do in heaven is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the lost. It is a message. You say, what's that message? Here, here it's so simple. Don't miss it, okay? Every religion on planet Earth, every single one is telling you, work your way to heaven. Just do it. I don't care. Spin things, light things on fire, offer things, give things, you know, do these things, do that thing. Somehow you're going to be good enough to get to heaven. There's only one faith on this planet where it's just the opposite, where it's, uh, God says to you, you can't do it. You can't make it to heaven. You're not going there unless God does something, and God did something. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. He did the work. That's why it's called the gospel. That's why it's meant to say good news. The good news, God did it. He sent his son, the perfect God-man, lived a perfect life, then offered himself on the cross for the sins of his children, and then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And now, if our sins fall on Christ by faith, his righteousness can cover us, and therefore we're dressed in the right appropriate garment to be received into heaven. If you're not dressed in his righteousness, you're not going to heaven, period. The interesting thing about salvation, too, is not only is it you're dressed right, but he also changes your heart, called regeneration. You become born again, and now he gives you a heart that you want to obey him. You want to follow him. You want to please him. You say, Christian, where are you getting this from? Romans 6, 17. We have a heart that desires to obey, even when we fail him. As Christians, even when we're laying flat on, oh, man, I blew it, I argued, I, I got upset, whatever. Even then, you're going, but I still want to follow him. I still want to obey him. 
That's the heart of a born-again believer. So he changes you by giving you the right righteousness, and he changes you internally by giving you a new heart. And if that's not your experience, then you won't be able to do his will. You won't be able to share his message. And the Bible would then declare that you would be worldly, possibly stained, possibly conformed, and worse of all, maybe condemned with the world. So would you, for a moment please, stand as we consider some things and close our time in prayer. Would you please stand and pray with me. But allow me to share some things and then I'll close. If you would, close your eyes and just meditate on your own heart. Say, well, you know, today I, I don't feel very much love for God right now. And there are two reasons for that. One is the possibility that you're truly not born again. It's possible you're a cultural Christian or you prayed a prayer once, you walked an aisle once, you made a decision once, you call yourself a Christian because that's your family or that, that's the people that you care about or you like the morality of a Christian. But you've never experienced a deep change, transformation in your inner nature by the power of the Spirit who changes your heart so dramatically that, that basically Romans 5, 5 says God's love is shed abroad in your heart. He's the one that does it. There are a lot of religious churchgoers today who know nothing of the new birth. We had a man, in our, a man in our church who was in churches for 30 years. And then he came to realize that he was not born again. He was not transformed by God. Would you, if that's your heart, cry out to Christ to open your eyes, to open your heart, to, to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh? so that you might love God with your whole life, turn from your sin and repentance, depend on Christ by faith, exchange all that you are for all that he is. You, you say, Lord, I, want, I, want, I hate my sin. I want it to fall on Christ in punishment there, and I need your righteousness. I need you to change me, transform me. Quit, don't quit pursuing him. Keep asking him, praying to him. Jeremiah 29, 13, seek me. You'll seek me. You'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. A second possibility, if you're not feeling a whole lot of love for the Lord this morning, is that your love for the Lord has simply grown a little cold. And we've all experienced this, all of us. You've tasted what it means to have a heart for Christ. But this morning, the wick is a smoldering. But the prescription for your ailment is not much different for the non-Christian as it is for the non-Christian. The same spirit that begets life also nourishes life, and the same word that ignites the fire of love also rekindles it. So yield yourself to the spirit. Immerse yourself in the word of God. Don't be content with anything but passionate love for Christ in all things. And then you'll find your love for this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might be less worldly as a result of our time in the word today and more like your son, Jesus Christ. We know, Father, that that is not possible unless you do that work in our midst. We thank you for the clarity of John and his, his just incredible ability to speak so plainly. And Lord, we pray that we might understand now worldliness in the way that you teach it and that we would understand our hearts before you need to be pursuing you and, and reaffirming you as our first love. And we know that it's your spirit that will do that in our lives. We pray that you would be glorified with our response. We pray that you would be worshipped today, not just by the songs we sang, but, Father, by our living sacrifice that offering ourselves to you in totality. And, Lord, we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do because you deserve it all. And, Lord, we thank you and praise you. And in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for coming. Amen.